Skylar Moore is uh, an attorney that's been practicing entertainment law since 1981. Uh, he's the author of a book called The Biz, which is the definitive book about the business, legal, and financial aspects of the film industry. It's currently in its fifth edition. He also has been named a power lawyer by The Hollywood Reporter. Sky has handled some of the largest financing transactions in Hollywood, including Reliance's investment in DreamWorks, the Rat Pack Dune slate financing for Warner Brothers, the Hemisphere slate for Sony and Paramount, and the Hunan Group slate financing for Lionsgate. Welcome to the Film Situation Podcast. We're so pleased to have Skylar Moore on the Film Situation Podcast. Thank you so much for having me on. Tell us a little bit about how you first got into entertainment law. How did you first decide to pursue it? Oh, I didn't decide to pursue it at all. I wasn't interested in it, and I still am not. <laughs> I was a started life as a tax lawyer and was determined to do nothing but tax. That and seems like a more sensible route. <laughs> yeah, def- definitely. And I, in my determination to, to do tax, I quit a, one of the big national firms and joined a small boutique that promised me I would do tax. And it turned out that they were one of the leading entertainment boutiques in Los Angeles. I didn't know it at the time. And so everything that hit my desk was entertainment. And, and then I just never said no to anything that hit my desk ever. And so when distribution agreements or M&A or copyright or securities or bankruptcy, I just kept doing it and learning it. And I would go and whatever hit my desk, I would go learn. And then I ended up with a sizable group of entertainment clients. And from ground up, I started doing film financing. I was always on the corporate side, not the talent side. And because the world is very much divided between those two, particularly for lawyers. And I was on the business, corporate, tax, securities, bankruptcy, that side, and not on the talent side. And and then I ended up writing. And actually, I want to unpack that for a second, because for people that might not be as familiar, the world is really divided between attorneys that just represent actors and directors and that sort of thing versus the corporate side, meaning like studios and financiers, the distribution company, if you will, it's divided between the production companies slash distribution companies slash studios and then talent, which is actors, directors, writers. Okay. Interesting. That makes sense though. Very different models, very different economics, very different skill sets. Yeah. And so you've been practicing since 1981. You've seen a tremendous amount of changes in the industry. Oh, yes. (laughs) Oh, yes. And I think one thing that I got interested in speaking to you about is I watched a number of your YouTube videos, and some of them are some of them that were a lot older from 15 years ago. And I feel like you had a lot of you were pretty good about being able to do some predictive modeling about where the industry was going. And you forecasted a number of things that I feel like happened. You are exactly right. I've always, one, one of the things I do on a regular basis is predict the future. And I've been doing that forever so that I can get ahead of the curve and be prepared for what's coming. And I have been through maybe just luck, been remarkably <laughs> lucky in predicting the future way in advance. Like 
way in advance. I, I, one of my very early articles, very early, was a prediction that Netflix would, and the, the article was titled "Netflix Will Rip the Heart Out of Presale Financing," and it was an exact, and it was the most popular article I do with Forbes. It was a Forbes article. It was the most popular of the at, of the week. I won the week. It was completely hit, hit exactly true. And then years ago, I wrote a article on artificial intelligence coming to Hollywood and years ago yeah, and exactly has come to pass exactly what I predicted exactly the way it would the end that I predicted the theater chains going certain ch theater chains going bankrupt predicted the, the rise of streaming predicted the change of pre-sale financing and which is what I did for a living so I've been call it by luck or whatever, but yes, I've I'm, I've learned. It's been when I look back, I go, wow, I hit it right on the head. It's fun. That's amazing. Yeah, and I read a number of your articles, including a more recent one about AI in go. Hollywood, yeah. and that was actually really interesting as well about how you were discussing yeah. the developments of AI and having a yeah. profound effect on the industry. Yeah, and yeah. what all that'll mean for the guilds and how copyrights are enforced on these yeah. sort of things. And I thought it was really interesting, actually. Yeah, you talk about changes in Hollywood. That's going to be the, I, as you say, I've gone through numerous changes, but that's, this is going to be the biggest. Nice. Fun fact, I actually, uh, I used to work at IBM and I was the first person to be involved with, it was actually the first, when I was working at IBM, at the time there was a movie trailer that got released that was compiled by AI for this movie called Morgan. And that was in 2016, directed wow. by Luke Scott. And it was like the first movie trailer in the world that was compi compiled by AI. And I was involved in that whole project. And that very got a lot cool. of press. Yeah. Very cool. I'll so send you a link to it. Actually. Okay. Very yeah. fun. Please. And that was in 2016. Please. And it was like, it turned out to be a great success. Really interesting stuff, especially on the AI front. I'm really, have you messed around with chat GBT just to. Oh, all the time. Yeah. All the time. <laughs> it's interesting, right? It's incredible. It's I've tested it on various things, including sophisticated tax questions. And it is. It's absolutely remarkable. Wow. Okay. So now talking about film financing for a bit, and uh, I've seen a number of your videos where you say in a tongue in cheek way, but although in a true way that a lot of people get into film because it's a sexy business, right? Like 80% yes. of films lose money. Yes. Would you say that number is still accurate? On yes, the 80%? Ab absolutely. You're you, you've done your homework, so I'm impressed. <laughs> Thank you. No, seriously, you're honestly God. Um, yes, I would say 80% of films lose money, and they and the average is they lose 20% of their budget, and and it is a absolute lunatic industry in the sense of there's no economic sense to it at all. It's totally driven by the sexiness of the industry, and whenever you're looking for investment, you're always pitching that that aspect and not the economics, like. You just pitch. Okay, so th oh, okay. that's where I want to pick your brain even more about because okay. as a filmmaker and as somebody that before I became a filmmaker, I did go to school for business. So I took a plunge into the craziest business, I guess, that's yeah. the most unpredictable business to some extent. But I, at the same time, I still have a deep interest in how I would present, for example, what kind of advice would you give aside from that, aside from just pitching the sexy aspects like to somebody, to a filmmaker that's sensible, what kind of advice would you give them if they were pitching an investor? Would it be to like mit mitigate the risk? Would it, and just focus on the up potential upside? No, I don't. I always pitch, I always pitch credit. I always pitch getting, I, sometimes I feel like I'm a credit broker because I can, I know the pricing for credits on a big film to a small film. And I'm, I pitch, you're going to get an executive producer credit. 
you know, if they're really putting a serious money, even a producer credit, I can pitch co-producer credits. And then I pitch, you get to go to the premiere and oh my God, you get to get on the set and you get to meet the starlets. And oh my God, you get to go to the after premiere party and oh boy, aren't you going to have fun? Yeah. That is what we pitch. All right. And that's still valuable to some wealthy oh individuals. God. Absolutely. Absolutely. We love them all. Anybody, rich guys or girls that have made a billion dollars somewhere else and come to lose it in Hollywood. That is what we love. And yeah. that's what they do. That's what they do. And is that, is the private, how much percent of it is, comes from private equity on the right independent now, film side? On the, oh, it's like all of it. it. All of it, yeah, right? All of it now. Yeah, there's no more pre-sales. Yeah. The only pre-sale now is to a streamer. And then it's all or nothing. You don't need equity. If you pre-sell to a streamer, you just don't need it. And, and because there's no upside. And outside of that, it's just people taking swings, swinging for the fences and bringing in equity and then making their film and hoping that they can sell it later. So to, some, so to give some context to some of the audience that might not be as familiar with pre-sales, pre-sales was the way that a lot of independent films and worldwide films were financed. And especially when there were ancillary markets, would you say like when there was like VHS DVDs? Not so much that it was ter- it was really country by country. So you would go, country. yeah. To, this is what I did forever for years and years. It was you go to you go to Cannes, you go to Sundance, you go to Toronto, and you would sell country by country. So you would take your budget and you'd sell ten percent of the budget to Germany, ten percent to UK, ten percent to Japan. Like television come, rights as well. It's all right. It's all yeah. rights within those territories. Theatrical, the video, TV, and then you would take those contracts back and and ask a bank to loan against them, and then a bank would say, "Go get a completion guarantee," and you'd get the completion guarantee, and then you would get the loan against it, and you'd make your film and then sell it. And then the distributors pay on delivery. And then in a perfect world, you sell it for more than you made it for. Yeah. And that's over. That market, that game is really over. There's still some films that do it, but in general now it's a worldwide streamer deal. So the streamers completely have replaced that model. Yeah. And there's only a handful of streamers that could fund these things. So Yes. Yeah. It's interesting. Do you, th- do you think there's still a lane for, do you feel like there's, what, I feel like at some point, like $5 million was like the sweet spot for certain types of independent films that could attract stars and potentially still make a profit. Do you think that's? I don't think there's any, there's no magic number. There's no sweet spot. It's, it's the lower the budget, the better. That's all I can say. Yeah. Your only hope is you make it as low as possible. Or if you don't, if you haven't pre-sold to a streamer, your only hope is to make it for as low budget as possible. I saw at some point you had a video on YouTube that was talking about box office financing. Yes. Is that yes. a potential? That, that, got, that was... <laughs> I feel like it was a good idea. It, it was, was a great yeah. idea. It was a great idea. It was yeah. a great idea. It was going to, it was, the, the idea was to put on, go on the Chicago Exchange and sell futures predicting based on what you expected the box office to be. So it would be objective because we don't know what the box office is when it comes out. And so it would be just like trading any other commodity on the Chicago exchange. And the, and, the, and I went, I actually got it through the commodities future trading commission. And then I got stopped at Congress because the MPA motion picture association yeah. of America objected to it. And the reason they objected to it was because they were scared that 
the public would go online to see what a movie was trading at and to decide whether or not they would go to the film or not. And I kid you not, that was that, their concern. That's insane. That was insane. They so could it, look I, up I, Box Office Mojo to see they, what the numbers get. That's exactly what I said. Guys, you don't think there's already pre-release stuff on Rotten Tomatoes and Box Office Mojo and whatever? And like, really? And you really think that the people are going to go online to see what it's trading on? The, but it, that, I swear to God, that was their fear. And they actually got it. A law, they got a law. They got a law passed outlawing my proposal. And so the two things now that you cannot ex- trade on the Chicago Exchange is films and onions. Oh. And, I, and I kid you not, and the reason for onions is there was a very strong onion lobby in the 50s. For some weird reason, they were scared of onions. And so those are the two things that, by law, you can't trade on the Chicago Exchange. That I thought wild. it was a great idea, but it got they got stopped by law. Yeah. So that's specifically Chicago. If it was on, would it still theoretically any exchange, on, no, on any, you, Yeah, that's the big one. But you can't trade any. You are not allowed to trade onions and on and public publicly trade commodities yeah that's films. too bad sky very, yeah it was, it was uh, i thought it was i thought that was a really good idea and it's too bad that it got kiboshed <laughs> yeah. for a very seems like a trivial reason <laughs> you have definitely done your homework and there's some very funny by the way there's some very funny clips of me testifying before congress on this issue with the mpa fighting anyway they, i gotta look very, into that, that it's very funny it's that's very wild funny. I feel like that should be repealed somehow. <laughs> yes, yes. Do you think box office for indie films is still like doing a territorial? Is that still? I have it's no. A, go ahead. I'm gonna I'm gonna be the dump water on this whole. Yeah. The independent film world, the concept that you're gonna swing for the fences and do a theatrical release and make money is over. I swear to God, it's just over. And your own, it's just it's a bloodbath. The world now on the theatrical side is you either have the big blockbuster films that are they're top yeah like top gun maverick there you go there you go now and even what's the the latest animation one with mario yeah yeah that's that was that that was a big look you had a fantastic trademark you had a big budget but then you're fine then you can go theatric star wars avatar but beyond if short films under 100 million man they're just theatrical is wiped out the theater chains are going bankrupt the films all lose money and they all, you've got to go to a streamer. Everyone these days is just online and they're both mobile and on their computers. They're just not going, they're just not going. And I know everyone gets excited. Oh my God, Super Mario, look how well it's doing. Maybe the theaters are back. No, theaters are not back. Theaters are going to be back for the big budget films, lower budget, forget about it. And you've got to sell to a streamer and you either sell in advance or you sell afterwards. Um, and they want to pick it up on a worldwide basis. So it destroyed. I have gone out. I had films that went out to the market and pre-sold using the old model, pre-selling territory by territory, Germany, UK, Japan. And then the streamer said, get rid of them. We don't accept that. And then we had to go unwind all the foreign pre-sales so that we could do a streaming deal. Wow. And, and so it, that's your worst situation because now you got to go pay off the foreign distributors to let you go. So that's the worst. So you know, now I just tell everyone, don't bother, don't do it. You're gonna streamers want worldwide, and they're gonna insist on it, and you're gonna have to unwind these foreign deals. So forget about it. And what's the sort of range on these sort of streaming deals for those kind of for independent? Well, you try. Look, the game is you. The game is it used to be 150 percent of the budget. It's gone way down because of the competition. Is that everyone realized that model is not working? You no, know, yeah. the Netflixes have to get their 
costs in line. It's now down to 120% of the budget. And so the game is what can you shove in the budget? And so I have managed to get some pretty big numbers by being pretty aggressive on what we shove in the budget. And that becomes the issue. What can you get away with by shoving in the budget? But your premium these days is between 10 and 20% if, of a, if you ask a screamer what they're willing to pay. Yeah. But as far as millions per film, it's really, it varies uh, tremendously. Or you yeah, can't It doesn't say. matter what the budget, like whether it's 1 million or 30 million or whatever, that's it, you're, the, the way the, net, the streamers approach it is we're going to pay you a premium on the budget. That's just how they do it. And it seems traditionally the sort of catch 22 of Hollywood was people can't get films financed unless they have talent attached, but they oh, can't get, get the talent point. unless they have the budget. So yeah. it's like, how do they, in your That's experience, how do successful yeah. producers circumvent that catch 22? Okay. So that's the classic. And how do you get, how do you get financing without talent? How do you get talent without financing? The answer is you lie to both. <laughs> <laughs> I've heard okay. people say that. That's You're not the, the first you person. Lie to every, you lie to everybody. Okay. And you say, I've got it. And then blah, blah, blah. And I've got a talent attached and I've got money attached. I've got clients that are extraordinarily good at threading this needle. And w once they have a track record of being able to do it, then people tend to trust that they can do it and are willing to play along. And so I, and I, and in particular, if they have a, an, a, a road open to the streamers that they are able to pre-sell stuff effectively to the streamers. And I call them the people that have this, this doorway, the anointed ones and the anointed ones are the ones that have a track record and that the studios will take their call and they can make it happen. And so what I tell anybody that is coming up as a producer is I go partner with one of the anointed ones because the anointed ones, people will take their calls, agents will take their calls and listen, and people will roll along, play along. And you can figure out who the anointed ones are by just looking at the credits on the kind of film that you want to make on any of the streamers, because you'll see consistent producers, production companies, and those are the anointed ones. And so that's the game. But it's a very tough game. Yeah, that makes sense. Selling stuff, routinely sell stuff we don't know for clients. Like routinely, it's hilarious. We don't need anything, but we're, we pretend we do and we somehow get along with it, get, get through it. It's but I, get, I guess those certain anointed ones, like you say, they've built a sort of reputation because they have this sort of ebb and flow where they could get it done, right? Yes, exactly. Exactly. That makes sense. It's such a wild business, right? Do you ever look at it the film industry and you're like, this is so unlike any other thing? <laughs> oh, completely, completely. It's, an, it's a nutty, absolutely nutty business. You've got a business that has run at a loss forever, forever. And at least in, particularly in my last 40 whatever years of practice, has consistently lost money. And the game always is running around trying to find more suckers to invest in it so you can keep going. And, it, and yet they're, and they're always there. There always is more, always. And sometimes it's foreign countries. Sometimes I've done every imaginable financing, every country, insurance-backed financing. I've done, there were crazy lenders from the foreign lenders were lending. The Japanese came in, the Chinese came in, the Indians came in. It's always someone new coming in. Yeah. And have you ever seen certain producers that they tr basically try to pay money from keep their reputation by pay like offering to pay money on their next film 
And then they're just hoping to get a hit eventually, like paying back the investors from their previous project. You, they never volunteer to pay more right. than the investors are entitled to. And the, the investors typically walk away with about 80% of what they invested. Gotcha. Gotcha. <clears throat> yeah. I was just thinking about it from like a reputation perspective that, you know, if the investors then did okay, and then they're just trying to get money going from the next group of investors but then that becomes i don't know if that becomes almost like a ponzi sort of situation now it's usually the the well dries up after a while is the truth and you go to the next yeah gotcha gotcha what do you see the next trend aside we talked a little bit about ai but in terms of on just on the business side the big ones the big trends that are coming is it's virtual reality. I think virtual reality is going to be, is still coming. I, I don't, I think it's going to be location-based VR is really fun. Location-based VR is really fantastic. At home, I don't think will work. I don't think the metaverse is going to work because I don't think people are going to want to sit around wearing heavy goggles at home and then walking into walls and whatever they falling down the stairs. Location-based VR is going to be big. I think that some of the theater chains that have gone bankrupt will will they've got a lot of real estate, and so it is a logical conversion for them to convert from theaters into a location-based VR format. And I, I think that's going to be big. I think a lot of theaters are other the normal theaters are in trouble. That's no no question. And then you've got a then streaming is going to be a huge. I think gaming is going to is already. Just, the streamers are trying to get into gaming, like a subscription model for gaming. That makes sense. And that's so gaming is going to be huge, in particular if they can get the speed fast enough on a remote. So it's not you don't have to be on your PlayStation; you can do it online. Once they get that figured out for games that can that you can do online, that's going to be that's going to be just huge. And the streamers are aware of this; they're scared of it because gaming is now bigger, it's way bigger than streaming, and so. The streamers really got to, have got to get into that. And then AI is just going to completely up in the industry. AI is going to, they're going to, we're going to be making entire films starting from ground zero. Scripts, characters, actors, the visual, the music, ground zero is going to be done by AI. And that's going to threaten all the guilds in Hollywood. That's going to, it's going to upend the entire industry. It raises some very difficult questions on copyright protection because the copyright office says that AI created works do not qualify for copyright protection. So you can't protect it right now. Because it, it's essentially just a hodgepodge of other things that have existed before that, almost like a collage, right? Th- that they wouldn't, if, as, if a human did it, they'd allow it. But they, what their position is that if a machine does it, it's not protectable. So we're down to, you got it. It's got to be done by humans is their theory. And even, and they would have allowed it if it's a, if it's a collage made by a human, they would stay to allow it. I see what you're saying. But it seems like even if there was an AI compiling the film, there would still need to be some sort of person, some sort of person directing kind of some aspects of the creative process, no? So far, they haven't allowed it. So far, they have not changed their position on that issue. Gotcha. It's interesting. It's really interesting yeah. to see what's yeah, going to unfold. Yes. Do you anticipate that movie theaters will exist in the future 
not in their current mode. Definitely not in their current mode. Yeah, it's just one of these things. Like I'm just trying to imagine in 20 years from now, will people be going to the movies in any capacity? Now, obviously, I hope the answer is yes. I hope there's something that could, because I think the communal experience of watching films is important. But from a business standpoint, this seems to be really problematic right now. I think where it's going to go is that on the theater side, it'll be very high-end experience. Particularly in another five years, there'll be 3D seats. There'll be 4D sound, sound, surround sound. There'll be, when you sit in your seat, it will rock. It will, when the, if you see a jet flying, your seat will track that jet. You'll feel wind and you'll have a very high-end, like, very high-end experience. That's what theaters will go to. Almost like a VR experience, but you're what, you know, it's something that you're, yeah, that you're pass. You're not creating. You're a passive viewer, but that very hot. You can imagine Star Wars, where you're feel like you're flying the spaceship, and you're and you feel the explosions, and you like a next level of IMAX. Like where it's just it's experiences where you just can't have that at home. Essentially, they're bringing some something to the table where just like the home viewing experience yes. doesn't offer that. Yes, that's exactly right. That's exactly right. So it, that's where it needs to go. If you want to get keep like, people going to the theaters, they need to do that. Yeah. And and right. And then the rest. Is, and that only work, though, for very high end films, like films with 100, 200 million budgets. And so that'll be. And then the rest will be on streaming. Everybody else will be on streamers. Yeah. And then the question is streaming. Does streaming go to ad supported? Does it go to what needs to happen on the streaming side, by the way, is somebody get who can consolidate it and make it on a pay per view? Because I think people are tired of paying subscription for a bunch of garbage. And I think people would prefer to pay a couple of bucks to see what they want to see. And that's a whole, that's, it's pay-per-view VOD. And that needs to happen, but it hasn't happened yet. Yeah. So I was talking about this with a friend of mine, because when I was a kid, people didn't think twice about jumping into their car, going to Blockbuster, going to the video store and paying like three, $4 per movie, yeah. paying late yeah. fees. But now it yeah. seems like... With the with even with the click of a button, there's such a reluctance. Like, oh, I don't want to pay for that. I just they just want stuff that they feel like is for free because they're. I don't know. It's a, it's strange how that shift has happened over time that people don't want to pay for movies in the same way. I'm not saying there's well, not people that don't, but there's a lot of people th- that don't. A lot of people that don't, and I think this is what I think is going to change. Though I think when the, the people can't afford four or five subscriptions. To, for monthly fees, just like cable got what, just the way cable, the premium cable is getting knocked out because people don't want to keep paying. Think they'll come up with an alternative, and the alternative, of course, is I don't want to. I don't want a subscription to a bunch of garbage. I want to watch what I want to watch. Yeah, right. I was I was early right. about that. I did that like ten years ago, almost, <laughs> because I was just like, why is my like at the time I had a one year old son and he's like watching the Kardashians on TV and like. I don't want them watching that crap. Yeah, exactly. No, exactly. Yeah. And so that then if somebody can aggregate and go to the streamers and say, look, we'll pay you something for on a per film basis, that's where I think it's going to go. And by the way, some of the streamers are going to go bankrupt because the smaller streamers just can't compete with the bigger guys. You need too much. It needs volume. And this is why Netflix has such an advantage and Disney because they've got the volume. Yeah. You th- do you anticipate that Netflix will continue to be the dominant player like for years in the yeah. future? Yeah, yes, and then in Disney, yes. Yeah, that makes sense. It seems like they're 
they're pushing a lot more series than feature length films. That's exactly right. TV is where it's at because you want to get repeat viewers. You want people to have an incentive to keep going. This is, they're trying to get, they're looking out for the pay-per-view model by saying, look, if you're with us, you get to get the whole series. Yeah, you even see it from actors' perspective. I don't have to tell you, but uh, obviously there's actors that would have never done television many years ago, and now it seems like every major actor is doing Oh, yeah, absolutely. Yeah, that's... That bridge has been crossed. Yeah. By, by, well, by the way, you saw the same thing with even getting films onto streamers. We, we, you're not even mentioning that because you, we're now used to it. But there was a time major, major directors, stars, etc., would absolutely refuse to have a film go out on streaming. And then I'll tell you what really broke it. I sold uh, The Irishman to Netflix, and it was a massive budget film directed by Scorsese. And Netflix, the reason why they were willing to pay that much was really not for the film, but to be able to say to the Hollywood, Scorsese is directing a film that is going to premiere on Netflix. So therefore you should too. That's amazing that you were involved with that. Yeah. And by the way, and it worked. And so now everyone, without even thinking now, actors absolutely accept that the film will go out on streaming. Yeah. I love The Irishman, by the way. And I'm a huge Scorsese fan. Oh, wow. Okay. You're one of the few then. (laughs) (laughs) <laughs> that was not a popular film. I know it wasn't, but I'm just such a diehard Scorsese yeah, okay. fan. I actually, believe it or not, I saw it in the theater. I didn't even watch it. I was one of the few oh people God. that also okay. saw it in the movie theater. You're because one of the three, three people that <laughs> it played in New York. So that might change why I loved it because I saw it in okay. the theater versus at home. Okay. I do feel like it does change your experience of watching a movie. So- Can I tell you something? Sure. I'm sorry, but the, when every time I hear someone tell me the wonders of the, how wonderful a theater is, I think... Are you out of your friggin' mind? Every time I go to a theater, I practically get in a fight with the people around me who are talking and making noise and interrupting. And I said, it's the, for me, I'm sorry, it's the worst experience. I would, I, to have to fight your way to, through traffic, to get their park, go in there and then have everyone interrupt the, the movie, which they do, by the way. It's like, what? A, oh, this is just a wonderful experience. I'm sorry, but <laughs> I'm not buying it. I'm I have to tell it. you, I'll, I'll tell you a story after we, Stop recording because it's not appropriate for the podcast, but I did get almost into a fight <laughs> at one time in the movie theater because somebody just was just talking to his, I guess he was talking to his wife the whole time. He was just talking yeah. as if he was in his living room. I'm like, exactly. no, exactly. <laughs> and I actually, in the very room that I'm sitting, I actually built a home theater. I have a 4K projection. So when you're like oh. sitting here, it's like really nice surrounds. I have the acoustical foam. Like I have a pretty good home theater setup. So okay. it, it is nice watching movies this way. I do watch most of my movies at home. To be clear, but I guess I, <laughs> I yeah. there I still do like it. I said, by the way, I see on your shirt. Is that like a Top Gun motif or a- no? It's a World War Two B seventeen B seventeen. Oh, that's pretty cool. I'm a B seventeen fan. Oh, nice, nice man. <laughs> yeah. Are you a movie fan? Do you watch movies? Not at all. I don't watch movies. I don't watch television. I don't go to movies. I've never been interested in. And in, 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 this is the weird part. I'm, That's you know, so fascinating. Yeah. yeah. That you're involved in some of the most high profile Hollywood deals. Yeah. You're like a real mover and a shake in the yeah. industry. But maybe that's why you're so good at your job because you, there's a level of, I think passion, I don't know. I Sometimes I think passion is overrated. I think being dispassionate <laughs> gives you more of an objective kind of way of looking at things. I'm passionate about what I do, which is the corporate. I'm the boring guy. I'm the do the boring tax securities corporate side. So that's so you're, my passion. Yeah, you're passionate about like what yeah. you specifically do, but not about cinema itself. 
No, never. Like again, I fell into it because I was a tax geek that totally fell into it by mistake. Totally by mistake. Yeah. <laughs> now, is there is there tax laws that a lot of filmmakers don't know about that they should know about? As far yeah, as yeah, there, there are, there are. There, there's a very on the federal side. There's section 181 that you're going to hear about all the time, which is I, you get to. De- oh, go ahead. I'm so sorry. You've probably heard about it. You get to deduct the first 15 million dollars. Of even including development and during production, if you make a film, and, and you, it, is that only in effect if if somebody has done, let's say it's like a real estate investor and they've done X amount of transactions that year? It's is it not for everybody? Is it for certain sort of individuals or? It is, but you're very close. It's only for people that have what's called passive income, which is generally income from real estate, and gotcha. so. It is, it is, when you hear 181 pitched to the general, a lot of people are running around going, 181, isn't this great? We'll raise money. Number one, no, because it only applies to people that are, that have positive income from real estate. And most of those people are smart enough not to invest in films. And then second is they are taking a risk. It's not a credit. It's not, it's like what I tell people, it's like giving money to charity. It might not be as painful as it would be because you get a deduction, but it's not free you're get, you're taking a risk and you're going to lose some money and maybe it won't hurt as much as it otherwise would but you're going to you will lose money and then third is that you get the deduction anyway pretty fast um even without 181 you get the deduction generally on release of the film and so it's not a big deal this 181 and there are some companies running around that are completely fraudulent pitching 181 as a financing scheme and they are engaging in absolute fraud. So I, I always, I get investors come to me all the time and say, oh, this company offered me a 181 deal. And I said, I get it. I bet it's X and it always is X. And then, and I bet that they're, and I can tell you it's fraud. Yeah. I'm sure you've seen it all, the whole gamut of yes. kind of fraudsters. Yeah. Oh yeah. Money laundering. By the way, of- it's, it's, you got to warn all your audience the biggest for Hollywood, the biggest problem out there is schemers and dreamers. And the schemers are the fraudsters that try to rip everyone off. And there's a lot of them. There's a lot of them. And in particular, for the, when, they, when producers are looking for money, you got a lot of people that say, pay me something up front and I'll bring more money later. And you got to warn everybody, don't do that. And then the other problem is dreamers. And dreamers are, there's five times as many of them as schemers. And they all think that they're going to raise a million dollars and they all waste your time and energy and they're, they're all full of garbage and fantasy. And there's just a lot of dreamers. Yeah, I can imagine. Wow. So yeah, there's a lot of schemers and dreamers, un- unquestionably. So, so it sounds like you also represent sometimes the investors. A lot. A yeah. lot of investors. Yeah. A lot of investors. Yes. And a lot are a lot of them not in the film industry, but they're just, they hire somebody like you to because yes. you're in the industry and yeah yeah and I always tell them I always give them my book the biz and I always tell them you're going to lose money but I will do the best I can to make it as much fun and as least painful as possible but you will lose money they've got to be pretty <laughs> that's what I don't understand because if there's that sat like usually they're pretty savvy people if they're multimillionaires and they could throw in that perhaps even billionaires that they can throw yeah. in that kind of money into a film Right. Yeah. Yep. Then why are yep. they doing it if you're telling them that they're going to lose money? That's what I don't because, understand. Because uh, two things: they always think that they they'll be the exception, and they're sometimes there's a gamble. Effectively, these are guys that have been successful in making some business 
work, so they beat the odds somewhere else. And then it's the fun. Hey, I got money, and it's fun. And okay, let's go have fun. Okay, and so sometimes they are successful because 20% of the time, they could make yeah, money. I've had some successful films, but nice. even when they, the problem is even when they're successful, the money gets taken by the studio. It's very hard. It's so easy to cheat. You have no idea how easy it is to cheat if you're the distributor. And it's just very, it's beyond your wildest dreams how easy it is to cheat. And so you very rarely, even on a successful film, get the studio to pay you what you should be paid. Yeah, they call it creative Hollywood accounting, I think for yes. a reason, right? It's exactly right. And And by the way, Content is not king, distribution is king. Because whoever controls distribution controls the money, and and it's very easy to move money around in a way that you never have to pay anybody you know, what, they're, what they should be paid. Distributors, have, and if you look on a global scale, and by the way, just as a footnote, on a global scale, if you look what's happened, the 800-pound gorillas in Hollywood forever, forever were the studios because they controlled distribution. And therefore, they got to slam everybody else. And if you look at the law of supply and demand, there was this massive oversupply of production because it was fun and easy and sexy. And there was a lack of the same demand on distribution because it's not as fun and it's not as sexy. And therefore, the studios controlled distribution and they were the 800-pound gorillas and they were the king. In the last five years, six years, that has completely changed. And now the distributors are the streamers and the studios are now the producers and they're on their knees. All right. The studios are now on their knees because they become production companies for the streamers. And so they're desperate to try to hold on to distribution. Disney managed to do it. The others have not. And they're trying desperately to hold on to distribution because that's the power. But they're but in general, they're not making it. They don't have the volume. They and they're not and they're trying to compete against the the streamer and they won't be successful. So it's the work. Hollywood is really upside down on that issue. Yeah, that's actually pretty. That's interesting, but it seems like inevitable, in terms of with everything else that's been going on with streamers in the last ten years, and just the amount of production budgets that streamers have in the last ten years versus studios, right? Yes, exactly, exactly. Jumping back to one thing that you mentioned on the 181 of the tax law, is there situations where that's really helpful for some someone? Not really, not really. So it's it's, it's just more of a myth than anything else in terms. Yeah, of- it's totally the, the federal 181 is a complete myth. The only good the good stuff is the state tax credits. Yeah. Okay, state tax credits absolutely matter. Those are still strong right now. Very strong. I just drafted the legislation that just got passed in Kentucky. I got drafted there. Their production subsidy credit, and and so they're and product. Okay, look, think of Kentucky because I just they got a good one actually. Yes. And Georgia is very strong. Louisiana strong. Some New Jersey, New. You know, so there's a lot of states that are competing on the state tax credit. Yeah, and those, New, New York those are is credits. Pretty, New York is yeah. pretty strong, right? Yes, and those are credits. Those aren't deductions. Those are <coughs> and there someone just hands you money and it's a happy day. Yeah. Yeah, and the I guess. The criteria for that is if somebody, if the film is already funded and it's about to go into production, then you get a tax credit on it. You get, what they do is they give you a credit and you go sell it. So you get, you go to a broker that, that sells the credits and usually you get 90 to 95, 90 to 95 cents on the dollar. That's pretty good. Um, I feel like that's a yeah, pretty good it's great. Percentage. And by the way, you can get up to 20% of your budget on, it depends on the state, but you can, you can get up to 20 on, on 10 to 20% of your budget, depending on the state. Yeah. All right. 
that's an important thing. And I've actually yeah. heard you say something interesting on a YouTube video that we're the only country, I think, that does it. Like each state is really competing with other states yeah. versus the country. It's I guess it's to the benefit of the filmmakers, but... It's, it, it, you're, you're, it's an absurd, we have an absurd situation where the states are competing against each other instead of the U.S. government competing against the world. It is a, currently a, an, a game that is, a, that's absurd. And It's funny because one time I went to Cannes and I'm walking around like the pavilions over there. And I, for people that have never been, it's on the French Riviera. Like you see all these tents, they call them pavilions. Yes, and you see them yeah. from country to country. So you'll see like. The one for England, it'll say it's the UK Film Council or yeah. or like for each country, it's usually sponsored by their, their like national councils that like yeah. endow the arts and support the arts. And then when I got to the US, it was like sponsored by American Express. <laughs> <laughs> and worse, in the state, you'll have the states setting up their own booths competing against each other, which is absurd. Yeah. So I thought that interesting. But and I've heard in the past that some states... I don't know if this is, it really just depends. There are states that have had credits, but then they go bankrupt. Yes. It's well, like, the, to be honest, the whole state credit thing is completely insane. It's the worst economic theory for a state. It is, it's a it's absurd economic theory for a state. It's a, it's absolutely a drain. The truth is they're just handing money to Hollywood carpetbaggers that take the money and leave. And the theory always is, oh, these are, the way this gets passed is that some film buff in the state says, oh, isn't it wonderful to have film here and let's, and we'll do a multiplier effect. If we give a credit of $100, then people will spend that and spend that all in the state and isn't that wonderful, we'll generate all this economic activity. And the answer is no, <laughs> no. What you've done is you've taken $10 out of the local taxpayer's pocket who now no longer can go spend it in the state and you've handed it to Hollywood carpetbaggers who take the money back to Hollywood. I mean, that, that is what's, on a fundamental level, that's what's happening. It is, it is absurd. The state tax credit for the states is completely absurd. It's a boondoggle for the producers, but it's a ri ridiculous economic theory. I guess is also the theory that they're employing just a certain amount of people that live in that state or? Yeah, but it's sure. Okay. A little bit, a little bit, but yeah, I would yeah. tell you, most of it gets ends up taken out. And so like of all the, and by the way, of all the things to subsidize in the world, Films? Like, really? Like, films? Like, how about schools? How about hospitals? How about any number of worthy... Of, how about let's get the homeless off the street? Let's do something. But films? Like, what are people thinking that they're going to subsidize films, of all things? Like, really? Yeah. Right. Does that include total budget, including post-production? or that's, It depends on the state. Depends on the state. Gotcha. So, mo most states only is internal, only expenses in that state. But some states have a very broad definition, like Georgia, where you can pick up the entire cost of the film. Gotcha. And get a credit, get a credit based on that. Yeah, which is remarkable. All right, interesting. So I guess they people would just have to do their due diligence from state to see what it covers, if it covers yes. post production, yes. like yes. the total bu budget is everything, just principal, and they'd have to yeah. contact their state yeah. kind of film board or whatever. So typically on the second portion of the podcast. I'll ask each guest what are two or their favorite scenes from any movies of all time. But it seems like you don't like movies. <laughs> favorite what? Favorite favorites? Scenes? Yeah, two of their favorite scenes from any movie of all okay. time. Uh, it could be I'll anything. Do I'll do it. I'll yeah. do it. I'm a motor. I'm a motorcycle fanatic, and so I will. 
I, I, the, the ending of Easy Rider. Okay. Okay. The, and including the Dylan one. song that goes with it, and it's, I think it's the most, for me, the most move. There's two. The, if I'm going to pick two things, it's that's and a good it's one. The, and it's the uh, one flew over the cuckoo's nest when the Indian breaks out of the hospital. I just. Yeah, I, I Milos find those, Foreman, yeah, great I, film. I love both of those scenes. I think they're both. Fun. But those, Easy Rider, in particular, Easy Rider hit me because I was a, at that time, as that's as old as I am, that's what I was doing. And I was on the motorcycles traveling around the country. And so that's I amazing. For, yeah, I didn't think you were uh, would have been riding motorcycles at that time. I was riding from yeah. the day I could see when I was young little kid, man. Yeah. I was on the bikes and I was traveling. I was traveling when I was 15 years old. Because you could get a license at 15 and a half. And I was literally traveling around the country at 15 and a half, going to all the way through forever. I that's wrote, remarkable, I man. Yeah, that's pretty cool. I used to, I, I have my mo- motorcycle license. I used to ride. I miss it. I sold my bike when I got married, but I'm like definitely missing it again. Me and my brother yeah. were in Vermont and we were at a motorcycle store and we we're looking at different bikes. <laughs> over there, it's more conducive. I live around New York City. Over here, it's people don't respect bikes over here. It's you a can, lot more. Yeah, you, Yep, you can't split traffic in particular in New York. Which is yeah, crazy. it's more dangerous. So do you ride yeah. out in L.A.? or? Yeah, oh yeah. Split. I know lane splitting's legal yeah. over there, so that's pretty yes, cool. Yes, exactly, exactly. Yeah, and that's the best way to get around as far as you don't have to worry your, yeah. your traffic. So I guess, first of all, I recommend Skyler's book, The Biz. Definitely check out The Biz if you're interested in learning more information. It'll contribute to your lunch money fund. <laughs> <laughs> there we go. Yes. Very uh, popular book. Boy, that, that book has really been taken off and I'm now in my, I think, fifth or his fifth edition. Is there any other thoughts that you have about that you want to share about just kind of film financing trends that are currently going on in the industry? What I would say to people is that I would suggest th- three things. One is follow my Forbes articles because the, I, if you want to know about current trends, that's where I post it and I do it monthly. Second is, as you mentioned, I have the YouTube channel, but and it's under Sky More, not my not Skyler More, but it's under Sky More. And then third is, if you want to be on, a, I have a newsletter that I send out routinely. And if you're not on it, or if any of your audience would like to, all they have to do is send me an email, and just put the word "add" in the subject line. And my email is very easy. It's s more m o r e at ggfirm.com. And so smore at ggfirm.com. You just put the word add and I add you to a newsletter and then you'll be up to date like on the latest things like AI, the streaming wars. I went, I did the whole, the writer's strike is coming up next. and <coughs> so That's going to be fun. Yeah. Nice. Sky, I thank you for being on the Film Situation Podcast. I really appreciated talking to you. I'm impressed. You've clearly done your homework. Thank you for listening to the Film Situation Podcast.